Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. All right, we are back for another episode of Nobody Told Me That, and I have my friend Andy Cleveland here. He is the accounts receivables ninja. You are the ninja of the dental space. How are you? Great. How are you doing, Teresa? Doing really well. I'm excited to talk to you. I've known you for an awful long time, but we only really see each other on the trade show floors and in passing. So COVID is a blessing in that regard that I'm getting to speak to more of my colleagues like on an in-depth level. And one thing that I see on Facebook all the time is if anybody has a question about collections, accounts receivable, billing, all I see in the in the comments is Andy Cleveland, Andy Cleveland, Andy Cleveland. So you are super popular. And I think for good reason, you have a great reputation. So I was hoping that you would share some of your best practices with listeners. And maybe we should just set the table that this is not necessarily an experienced listener that's on here, because I get them from all over. And I know there's quite a few dentists that listen too. So let's approach it from I have patients that maybe my collection isn't as great as it could be. What am I doing? Where's my money, Andy? Listen, it it goes around. I have people that don't want to pay us either. (laughs) We're working on before the call. So, you know, everybody owes somebody, owes money to somebody. The world is cyclical. You know, if you Google CNN money, they did a study about people in collections. And if you would guess this, one in three Americans are in collections at any point in time in our country. Seriously. Three. Google it and you can read the article. Don't take my word for it. And the average debt's like, it's pretty close to five grand if my memory serves me right. Do you know if, because I know healthcare is a huge part of our GDP. Yeah. Is healthcare a big reason for these, these collections, for these well, amounts? Yeah. I mean, I have nothing like empirical to back it up. But you can see the trend and right that you're the insurance guru, but you have higher deductibles, right? Bigger yes. out-of-pocket maxes. And then premiums are also skyrocketing. So like yeah. to me, you're getting covered less and paying more. I don't even understand how this is sustainable, not just from the dental world, but the medical world, how that's even a sustainable path. So, you know, you get sick or you get cancer and next thing you know, you know, you got a hundred grand bill. Like one of my wife's family members, she was in between jobs. She just started a job, was like 60 days into it and insurance kicked in at like 90 days. She had a heart attack. Oh no. Which she was clocking in. So do you think she's covered? No. Oh no. How is she going to pay for it? I have no idea. So the whole collection side of medical, the hospitals, the dental offices or medical offices are just a mess. Like I feel like I'm at the zoo looking in whenever I read or hear about medical offices and debt, because it is unbelievable what I see. They don't know the numbers they're billing. They can't tell you until it's been billed. 
Right. The people who work at the hospitals can't give you a number without the diagnosis and you can't talk to the doctor. It's just a huge cycle. There's a podcast I recommend often. It's called An Arm and a Leg. And it's about the medical side of the insurance, like all of the bills and people fighting back. So you might be interested in that. I right. That's one of my favorite podcasts. It's like a true crime podcast. Wait, who's the podcast with? I don't know. I don't actually don't know. It's it's a dude that has his own like insurance fighting company. Like he helps people get benefits paid. Huh. Called an arm and a leg. And okay. just some of the some of the stories you hear, like people that are getting helicopter rides or ambulance rides. Right. Like, nobody sits thinks to ask, Are you a network for that stuff? And then bam, here comes a five thousand dollar bill. If your arms chopped off, you're probably not like, Hey, am I covered? What's going on? Right. Can you imagine it could be the worst hospital and you just hope it works out and you don't go broke or bankrupt? Our industry would be that would be an I, indictment of our industry if somebody right. said, Hey, hold on a second, which hospital are you taking me to? That would be terrible. It is. But I imagine that that is something that once they get to the hospital, like the families get to the hospital and they go, oh, geez. Well, the business in America, like if you build a house, right, they tell you basically what it's going to cost. And there's a margin of error Mm -hmm. on supplies and materials. And if you, you know, you're buying a computer or you're buying home goods or a car, you know what it costs. But but like medical and dental, it's like this whole weird, bizarro land where no one even really knows what it costs. And listen, I've never had dental insurance. I've been self-employed almost my whole life. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know what it's like. So if we need work done, um, and thank goodness, I only have two cavities so far. <laughs> uh, but like my wife's had to have work done. And right, we ask like, hey, what's this going to cost? And sometimes they don't even know. And it's like, what business in the world doesn't know what stuff costs. Like I know, I know. And here's the thing. Some of my listeners are probably thinking, what office doesn't know how much it costs? Right. So you and I see a lot out there. So if you're in your office and you're like, what do you mean? I could tell them exactly how much it costs for a root canal. Andy and I have seen some stuff where <laughs> people don't even know where to look for the pricing or the doctor right. sets a price every time, you know, depending on difficulty and all of that. I mean, if you're not dealing with insurance, you can set whatever price you want. So right. there are some that are in areas where they don't need insurance. They're right. just seeing people. And yeah, I don't know if you're in one of those, but. Right. Well, people are not fee for service as much as people like to think that they are. Even the people that are fee for service, at least in my experience, are still out of network or still doing some right caring of AR. Yeah. Yeah. You know, unless you're in like Beverly Hills and everyone just pays you up front. I mean, it's a very cool thing to say to your friends, but that's not normally the case, at least in my experience. But I think there's a there's a misunderstanding, though, because you and I know fee for service. It means there's no insurance involved. You just pay right counter. Right. But when you're non participating, you still file the claim for people and collect their portion because but I think you're right. When somebody says fee for service, we tend to think, oh, my gosh, they've got it down. But I think they mix up the two. I think a lot of offices mix up the two. Yeah. And you're more, you know, that's more your wheelhouse, right? You're the insurance expert. And I was going to ask you, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot on a question, because I'm thinking about, okay, what are your listeners going to benefit from like best practices? Now you can be the best at collecting the patient balances, but what I see happen, Teresa, a lot is that practices don't pre-estimate correctly or communicate that with the patient. And if that part is broken and then you're going after the patient after the fact, 
you're starting that that whole reimbursement cycle completely on the wrong foot. Do you have a suggestion on how people pre-estimate insurance so that the patient doesn't have a balance to begin with? Yeah, I've got two things that can bring you closer to that goal. Uh, a lot of times when I get the call and they're they're having problems with that, the first thing is they're not using the PPO fee schedules in the computer. Okay. So what they're doing is they're making all of their estimates on the big number and they're pulling out the fee schedule. I know because I used to do this. And then you pull out the fee schedule, you cross it out, put down the insurance number. When they introduced the use of fee schedules, it made things a lot easier because now I'm doing 80% of the amount I'm actually going to collect. Okay. The other part of that is is knowing the plans. And admittedly, this takes some teaching or some right. experience. But if you know, for example, your molar fillings are not going to be covered well because they downgrade them to the silver then instead of 80% coverage for those molars, you need to be aware and make sure it says 65% coverage. Then when the claim comes in, you update the computer with the right amount. I'm not saying you're going to be perfectly on the spot. It happens sometimes, but you're going to get closer to it than if you estimated 80%. Then it comes in at a totally different number and there's the bill. And also things like missing tooth claws. You know, if you don't check to see if the missing tooth claws is involved, you're going to tell a patient that this implant is covered and then it comes back, well, we don't replace that tooth because it was it was missing before coverage. And you're going, oh, man, I should have caught that. But that doesn't help the patient. Right. Yeah. So it's it's really knowledge of the plans. And honestly, using the fee schedules cuts a lot of that down. And there's resistance for that. And I'm not really sure. I don't I don't understand. I don't quite understand. But or is it money? It's habit. It's habit. And here's here's what it is. So it's half seasoned managers like myself who are long in the tooth who have been used to doing it for quite a long time right so we don't we don't need no stinking fee schedules that's kind of what they say then there's the doctors who when they run their production number they don't want to see the lower production number they want their grand big total right right meanwhile that's that number is it's a cloud it evaporates you're only going to collect the ppo fee schedule so usually it takes about a year or two to get them out of their They'll get past that when, you know, when I'm working with them. I don't do very much with them anymore, but okay. I just get them to understand that it's nice to think you produce 12000 a day right. and you can go to bed and sleep well, right. but in the morning when you go to collect it, it's not there. Right. <laughs> what about estimating? And I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but this- No, it's fine. I'm learning as much from you as you'll probably ever learn from me. But like when you're estimating- can you choose a higher estimate? Like there's obviously a range. Oh, I see your dog. Oh yeah. And he's always here. That's so (laughs) awesome. He's photobombing us. I'm sure my kids will bust in on me eventually, but can you overestimate? There's obviously a range of estimation. Does Mm -hmm. it make sense to kind of go with the upper limit on that in the hopes that you won't have to bill the patient as much and you can actually maybe send them a check as opposed to the psychological needs that are met, right? Everyone wants to get checks. We don't want to get bills. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Cutting a refund check is a pain in the butt, honestly. So so let me answer your first question. Yes, I think overestimating is a great way to go. I mean, not obviously 100% above or anything like that, but you know, in, in range. But then when it comes back and they do have a credit, I use that as a reason to get them back in. So I'll right. say, hey, congratulations. Right. I didn't realize it, but you've got you know $75 now. Do you want me to hold on to it? Or do you want to go ahead and get scheduled for that other filling you've been waiting right. on? Or whitening, so, whatever. Yes, exactly. So I use that as a reactivation tool yeah. um, because 
my boss doesn't like to cut checks back to the patient. I don't blame him. Okay. So <laughs> let's see if we can get them back in. It's interesting because I have practices obviously that come to us about the patient accounts receivable and, and they're all mm. over the map. And I sometimes wonder when we're looking at the numbers together, if they could have dramatically had less of a problem just by dealing with it more prophylactically, right? It's just like that. Of course. Engaging in, in those best practices to stop the problem from occurring in the first place is always less pain, less cost than trying to get it after the fact. And, and a lot of times people bring us in after the fact. Uh, that is the unfortunate part of collections yeah. consulting, right? Yeah. So do you get a copy of their insurance aging report by any chance? Is that one of your requested reports or something that you run? No. So I... The number wouldn't really matter in yeah. your situation. I would run that report just to see how much is over 90 days, because that is a big clue for me that right. the insurance system itself is not operating well. And the best way to fix your collections problem mm -hmm. is to fix the insurance system problem. I agree. You know, I take a look at that and see what the problem is so that you can fix what's outstanding. So they're not just keep piling up yeah. on it, you know? Yeah. And I want to comment on that too, because that is huge. What you just brought up. If you have a lot of money on insurance that's outstanding to insurance, and in many instances, if you feel like that hasn't been done properly, mm -hmm. I definitely recommend that you get an expert like yourself or someone in the business to look at that. Because when you start getting a collection agency involved to mm -hmm. collect on balances that may or may not be right, you are you are basically taking a baseball bat and hitting a hornet's nest. Yes. Yeah. Everyone's going to be mad at you. You're going to get negative reviews. The insurance has to be done right before you can address the patient part. And a lot of times I have to turn business away and just say like, look, like I'm not insurance expert, but I can see your insurance numbers. They share them with us. And if they're all over the map and they're saying, hey, you know, we had this person in for six months. We're not sure if he did it right you start getting kind of an idea of what's going on. Yeah. And that's when I plug people in like yourself and say, look, I need you to look at this because I don't want to touch the patient billing until I know insurance has been done right. And insurance is a much bigger opportunity as well, right? That's where your yes. easy money is. It's much yeah. easier to collect from an insurance company than it is a patient. Well, you know, it's it's known amounts. I mean, as much as we can guess it, it's it's known large amounts. And if we just get the claims right, right, it's a better chance of getting paid. So when I was in practice years and years and years ago, I used a collection agency nearby. And it turned out actually it's somebody I went to high school with. And I didn't realize that her parents owned a collection agency for crying out loud. So we kind of ran into each other. I was like, oh, wait, That's I think cool. I know you. It was actually kind of neat. Uh, so we used her for a while, but we did have to send to small claims court. And I've done that a couple of times. So as you walk people through the collections process, right. how many of your people need to go to small claims court? Because that's an experience. It is. It's a total uh, show. And you can figure out the <laughs> expletive that I was going to say before that. <laughs> if you yes. can't, you're just not listening closely. Yeah. So to me, and this is just my perspective, and I'm not saying this is right. A, a lot of it's about the client. I am not an advocate for engaging in the legal process to collect money, either self-imposed from the practice directly or hiring a company to do with it. Because I think you're dealing with the toughest people in America. Like there's just some people that don't care about their credit. And 
you're going to spend whatever money it is to file suit. You're going to have your people, office manager, highly compensated person to show up. The person often doesn't show up. You get a default judgment and that's only good for starting a fire. Depending on the <laughs> state you're in, it doesn't mean you're going to collect the money just because you have a judgment doesn't mean you can walk over to their house and take their huffy bicycle off their porch. <laughs> right. It right. might be one of many judgments that maybe those people just don't care. And then you have nothing. Plus look at the optics of that from a public perspective. Do you want your dental practice to be known for going all the way to collect your money? I mean, think about the optics of that. You're talking about negative reviews. You're talking about complaints. You're talking about like, what's the public's perception? How can you want to be their healthcare provider and do what's best for them and be the friendly community driven dental office? Oh, and by the way, we're going to put the wood to you if you don't pay. Like you're kind of mutually exclusive. And when you get to that point, you're, you're kind of like not wanting to see that patient anyways. Right. But nowadays you can pretty much bet that they're going to leave a bad review. That's yeah. the, that's the bad part. You know, if that wasn't the case for, for me way back when, but, but you're right. When you get a judgment against the patient, you kind of just, you go yippee. And then you turn around and you go, now what, right. you know, <laughs> now what, how do I collect? And, and I remember my husband and I, we were in a restaurant and there was a lady I had sent to collections oh, and boy. she was sitting a couple tables over and I was like, I was so mad. Cause I was like, right. I sent you to collect and here she is. She's look at that. She's got a steak on her table. Right. I want that steak. You know, you yeah, get kind yeah. of riled up, but you know, you have to separate that. But it was kind of funny looking back that I used to take these defaults so personally. I did. When somebody didn't pay their bill, I took it so right. personally, you know, and I thought I knew you better right. or I should have gotten a feeling about you, but you can't, you can't do that. It's not Teresa and world. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> as much as we all love ourselves and right, whatever our egos, I see this every day, like people, it's an emotional decision, right? They always say when you go buy a car, it's an emotional decision, right? You're there in the lot. You may convince yourself, I'm not here to buy. But if you get in a car and drive it, you're definitely considering it. And those salespeople hit on your emotions to justify the logic. And it's the same thing with pursuing accounts and collections. You just don't take things personally. It's not personal. That person owes the bank they owe the, their past due on their car payments, going to get towed off next week. Maybe their cell phone is going to get uh, turned off or they really want the new iPhone and they'd rather upgrade. And it's not that they have bad intentions. It's not like there's, I'm not going to pay. Most people in your minds are, you know, they know they owe you the money, but it's just, you got a stack of bills and you have so much money to go around. Dentistry is one of those unique businesses that if you think about it, Teresa, you can't take anything back or dentures, right? You can't put someone back in pain when they don't pay. So dentistry is one of these consequence free environments where, Oh, I know, I know Teresa, she's a great person. Yeah. We're eating steak together and you know what? I'll pay her next month. Good intentions. It's just next month, the car breaks down and she needs a new transmission. And can I drive to work or do I pay Teresa? I'll just let Teresa so that's why I work exclusively with dentists is helping create those consequences artificially where none naturally exist. Got it. When you take on a client, they pretty much hand you a big stack of overdue accounts. Where do you go from there? I mean, what does that look like? Do you just take them home, sit behind your desk and work them? Or are you working with no. the team to get better at the process? 
Right. So obviously we have, I have collections partners that do all the work right behind our uh, dental practice ninjas, which is a resource to right connect people with, with services they can trust. But we have a, a collections team in Columbus, Ohio, right? Every collection company needs to be licensed and or bonded depending on the state requirement. And some states don't require any. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's a huge compliance element to it. So if any of your folks are, are looking at collection companies, people often don't understand it's a highly regulated business. It's like the insurance business, right? Like you have to follow, you know, there's certain rules and you have to be insured and you have to make sure that you're following state and federal laws. It's a big deal. So that's why, you know, we have partners, collection agency partners that will actually do the collecting. I'm basically a middle person. I, I connect the dots. So then as far as getting them set for the next level, I guess. Yeah. You work with them on that though. Yeah, I, I provide the kind of the common sense behind it, right? Converting that emotion to logic, mm-hmm. meaning like a sounding board. I mean, I met with a practice this morning. They they just said, hey, you know, we're producing a million and a half of our annual, you know, collections. And they had four people that owe money for a couple thousand. And it was just like, why? Just write it off. Right, that's that small part of your overall strategy. Just write it off. You don't have to feel bad about it. Like some people mm-hmm. want to pay me. Guess what, Teresa? I write it off. I think every business has that has that buffer. Like if you look at big corporations, they have a buffer for bad debt. Every right. hospital has an allowance in their budget for bad debt. And I know that at one point in time, you could talk to your accountant, depending on the state, and and some of your collections could be written off as bad debt huh. and deducted. Is that is that true? Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a CPA question because I'm not an attorney or CPA, so mm-hmm. I can't give legal advice. But it's actually funny. This conversation was actually about that. Oh. Can I write this off? And and from my perspective, that's an emotional question. In other words, she's almost asking permission to, can I just put these to the side and not worry about them? The other part of that equation, Teresa, is when does it strategically make sense to write things off from either an accounting or a tax write-off perspective, or even from a practice management perspective. Um, So sometimes they're really asking folks like you, right? Like, when does it make sense for me not to chase the account? If it's two or three years old, you should be just writing that stuff off anyway. And I always tell people like, don't kill the messenger. Hey, I've got a half a million dollars out. Well, guess what? I mean, you have debt out since before the internet. Eighties, when you know everyone was into hair bands. Let me tell you something: none of that's collectible. Write it off. <laughs> right. You know, it's just about being a good steward for people, giving them you know real information, and and trying to really do what's best for the client. Even if that means turning it over to a competitor, which just happened to me yesterday. I just my company was my partner company was not a good fit. It's a better mm-hmm. fit somewhere else, and that's what we're always going to do is try to do the right thing. It is interesting. You bring up the the whole resources. I remember working with one office and she was fighting for a 4910, which is a perio maintenance code. Okay. And her allowed amount was $79. And she was spending between talking to me, between being online on Facebook, asking for advice. I mean, she spent probably a good six hours on this and then freaking out about right. it. And not even freaking out because she's afraid she's not going to get paid. She was angry. Oh, you know, and if she's, you know, at a, at $30 an hour for crying out loud, that's $200, close to $200 for this. It just doesn't make right. sense. But 
I, but I get the principle yep. of it, you know? So, but yeah, you do have to make those types of decisions. Yep. If they have a bad debt, then you recommend them talking to their CPA to see if that's something they can work with. I think that makes sense. Cause I think there are certain requirements, like you have to attempt to go after it and there's some requirements, but any dental centric CPA should be very clear on what that needs to be done. And I do think there's some tax advantages of, of that, if I'm not mistaken. But again, talk to your CPA or your attorney. I'm more talking about the emotional part of it. In other words, if you're looking at your AR report and you have years and years of mistakes, it's very demoralizing because you're like, oh my gosh, we have all this money out. And it's just awful to look at. It's depressing. It's just like getting on the scale. And every time there's like, you're heavier than you were before, which this is a real problem in COVID. I can totally. <laughs> so it's like, okay, just right. Focusing on, you know, what, what's real and what's phantom. Let's focus on, right. The opportunity. What good can we do now for you? Where do you put your time and energy and where does it say, you know what? It's okay. Like maybe you should be calling on unaccepted treatment plans or recall or uh, a membership program, or maybe just having your staff take a break and go to lunch. That might be indeed more productive than chasing people for money. So the people who are listening, don't freak out. We're not telling you to let money fly, right. you know, away from you, but there is an emotional cost as Andy's saying to having all of that bad debt continuously on there, it can be demoralizing for sure right. to see your 90 over 90 days at just a ridiculous amount. I mean, people beat themselves up to get to this 98% collections right. and sometimes it's not possible. Some people, you know, are just like you said, they're never going to pay it. I have a question for you. And then I want to go back to the statute okay. that you, you brought up earlier. So the big question that I see, and I've never had this because we, we were able to figure it out amicably, but what do you do when a patient who owes you money passes away? What are we supposed to do? Yeah. You know, if, if family's around, you know, family called us to say, now what? Well, it's interesting you say this because I think about it a lot. One of the things about billing is billing people in the medium that you think your customers will respond to. It's kind of an unrelated aside, but like I have a neighbor he was in, I don't know, his 90s. And I'd see him every day cross the street, check his mailbox, his mailbox is in my yard, right? And then walk. Back. <laughs> and then he died, uh, unfortunately. Aww. But, you know, this is life. The thing is, right, like people have estates and affairs and probate to go through. So my thought process is if you feel like it's the right thing to do and you just want to write it off because that makes you feel better, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think mm. there's any problem billing that person and seeing if there are um, resources to compensate you. Because in most instances, right, there's a legal process, there's probate. And in men many instances, you know, there are entities that are distributing funds, right? Like what about his house? If there's money over right. a house, an attorney or someone's navigating that unless they just let it foreclose. So I would say it doesn't hurt to to bill that person and see if there's resources to help get you compensated. I wouldn't be hardcore about it. Right, right, right. You do have a right to be paid. Unfortunately, right, if you're allowing people the luxury of not paying at time of service, it's not your fault that something happened. So you shouldn't carry that guilt. And I don't I don't think that's pretty fair to ask for compensation, but Again, you want to be careful and you really have to follow your your own judgment. You know, if it's a small bill, their whole family's been with your practice for 30 years. 
right? Are you yeah, going to put yeah. a, a profi or something, you know, something? So you just got to be smart. So you brought up the legalities that you have to practice within legalities. What are those legalities? Is there a certain, besides state law, is there some I, overarching, you know, rule that you need to go by? So, and again, I'm just clarifying, I'm not an attorney or CPA. I'm <laughs> advice in case anyone's listening. But there are guidelines. And so a third-party bona fide collection companies must abide by the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. And if you have trouble sleeping, I would encourage you to Google it and start (laughs) reading it. It's all right there on the World Wide Web. And you will literally be asleep within minutes. So it tells you all the things that collection companies can and cannot do. Now, there's also state requirements too, but any collection company that you would consider working with, you want to make sure they have a good track record for following both state and federal guidelines. Now, if you're a dental office, those laws were created to protect consumers against predatory companies, right? That's why Like if you get a credit card, they can only go to 29.99% because 30% is considered usurious or predatory. So there's all these laws, but generally speaking, a practice pursuing their own accounts is a first party action. It's not another company stepping in. So I would say that the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act is a must for anyone collecting your accounts on your behalf, but it's also a very good guideline to follow internally to keep you safe, right? And they say, right, you can't call beyond, you know, I think it's nine o'clock, but double check it. Nine o'clock at night? Is that what you're saying? Nine yeah, o'clock at night? You can Google it. It's been a long time since I've read it. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's changed much since I think it was 78 when it was enacted. And then states have guidelines too. It's a very good resource. And you and I have talked about social media. On one side, it's super helpful. Like, When do you have all these people, great people engaging in conversation, sharing information, giving you moral support? Like that's one thing that's really awesome. But I remember this because you and I were talking about this. I hope you don't mind me bringing it out. That's fine. San Francisco. Like I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I remember these these just (laughs) abstract conversations. You and I were in San Francisco and we're outside of the ADA meeting. Oh, yeah. We were walking. Yeah. We ran into each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about how people get misinformation from these Facebook groups and how harmful that can be. And uh, so that's the other part that's really scary. Just make sure you're getting information from, you know, people that have your best interests at heart. Because I saw uh, a couple of days ago, there was a, a comment. Someone said, this lady got really mad at me that I put like final notice on her collection letter. Did you? I saw that and I had to read it because I said, did she put the sticker on the outside exactly. or on the inside? And I was like, yes, did she really? But I guess if she's never been trained, did she do it on the outside or the inside? I skimmed it, but I saw the question. So did you, did you get into it? If it's on the outside, she's telling everybody in the world that this person does not pay their bills and they're right. deadbeat. And that is very dangerous. That's one of the elements in the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. You can't disclose the debt to unauthorized third parties. So if it was on the outside, right, that would certainly, that's a red, red flag. So I don't know if she did that or not. But again, the point is 
follow the laws. And if you do that, it will keep you safe. Well, first of all, I love that she's still using stickers, even though it may be on the right place. Because I grew up with those stickers and I used to have fun ordering the past due sticker. This one, I'm going to go whimsical. This one, I'm going to go big, bold letters. Right. at the in the end, past due stickers didn't do a thing. Really? It was me. Call, well, what I'm saying is, I would call, and that would be right. how I get them to pay. You know, so I was just having fun with these stickers, and we even had 60 day stickers right. and 120 day stickers. Meanwhile, it didn't occur to me that we shouldn't have even gotten to 120 days. Do you know what I mean? Like totally. it just when you look at how we really cobbled the system together, mm-hmm. you know, if you didn't take any, a, any classes, of course, you're not going to know this stuff. I remember I took my first accounts receivable class with Kathy Jamison, who of course wrote that book, Collect What You Produce. Now it's in its second printing. And, and I recommend that book completely. That's what I learned. I haven't about. read that one. Collect. Oh, it's, it's a classic. She upgraded it, updated it. So the new one is out, but that's how I learned to do collections. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is the biggest pain point. And somebody actually wrote a book about it. So it was on my desk oh. for a long time. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have even had it on my desk because it did say collect what you produce. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I did. And, and it was because when you are starting out in practice, and that's why I feel for a lot of these, these people starting out, there's no signpost, there's no direction oh. given to you. It's something. It's so weird because uh, these folks coming out of dental, dental school, they're obviously heavily indebted, almost all of them. There's mm-hmm. a huge amount of pressure. And you think about it, you're clinically trained. Like if you were, I guess, in like Canada or Europe where it's like kind of a governmental type of system, right? Okay, I'm a dentist. So like I get paid by the government or XB, XYC corporations. Pretty simple. You practice dentistry, you get paid. Right here is very interesting that you're clinically trained to do all these awesome things, but 90%, I don't know what the percentage are independent versus DSO and that's constantly changing. But like many of these people are entrepreneurs and they, you get no exposure to that. It's so fascinating to me. Sometimes people think like, Hey, I'm just a good dentist. Like this is what I do, but You've got staff, you've got payroll, you've got taxes, you've got overhead, you've got all this other stuff that no one even talks about. They do have people come in. I mean, I I just spoke actually for Nova Southeastern. I've been speaking there for a couple of years. It's never to the degree that they need. Honestly, it would be great if they had at least a, here's your five guidelines and then get in deeper later, but they don't really get that. They are not even in the zone to think about that stuff when I talk to them fourth year. So it almost should be like your first year out, these are the classes you should be taking, you know, to start your business. What I saw a lot, uh, I used to do, actually, when I was full service consulting, it was mostly startups that I had worked with and they have such energy, but the problem is they're too nice. And they have relatives who, relatives and friends who, yes, the office is busy because all your relatives and friends are in there, but they all want discounts. Nobody wants to pay for anything and you've still got to pay your staff. So a lot of times I have to say, look, I know you like this person who lives in your neighborhood that you met while you were walking your dog, but you don't need to give them 50% off. And if you do, it's the common adage, you never loan money to a family member or friend. In other words, you're gifting it with the hopes of being reimbursed. And as long as you go from that mindset that you're like, okay, like I get it. We're all human. We all have relationships. Mm-hmm. We all have friends and family. And yeah, it might be uncomfortable to build that person in the country club. But when it comes down to it, 
You don't want your livelihood dependent on those decisions. In other words, that's like your play money, right? Those are the gambles you take as long as you're comfortable that you may never get paid and it's not going to keep you up at night, then go ahead and do those things. But don't pay yeah. mortgage payments on those things because that's where you're going to get into trouble. That's a good point. Because here's what happens is the people who you give courtesies to are going to be really excited and talk about right. it. But the people who you do really good work on and really they respect you, right. they'll mention it when they're asked about it. So do you want more of the discount people right. or do you want more of the people who have good quality you know, referrals? It's nice to feel busy, but if you're not making money, might as well go home and nap or walk the dog or something. And this is a whole nother conversation, this whole PPO debacle that we're in where they haven't you know, raised the fee schedule for a crown in eight years or whatever. Yeah, I see a lot of people on the hamster wheel. And, yes. and again, it's what we were talking about in the beginning. If you don't know what your services cost you, what that hard cost is for your time, your labs, your fees, your energy versus what you're getting paid for that procedure, you might be losing money by seeing some of these people. So knowing what your bottom line is and where that's drawn and how you get people into your practice is super important. So talk to me about COVID-19 and how that's affected the clients that have come your way. Is there more money going into debt? Is there a bigger awareness of collections? Talk to me about what you're seeing since COVID. I can only speak from my experience on this earth. I have nothing really empirical to back it up. Okay. So the first two years or two months, right, was like freak out. Right. (laughs) Yes. You know, I'm sitting there watching the news eight hours a day. Why am I doing that? This is nuts. Uh, wearing my hazmat suit to the grocery store. I did it. <laughs> Still kind of do. So anyway, first couple months, right? No one really knew what was going on. And and I was kind of, I wanted to be known as the person that when it came to be an ugly kind of a dark time in our country, I wanted to err on the side of compassion and empathy. So I was not advocating for Dennis chasing money. During about that eight to 10 week closure. We weren't ready. We're all in this together as cliche as it is. It's not, the time is not right. Now, from about July or August of last year to now we're March 10th, we're basically almost at the year anniversary of COVID. Wow. I've seen some interesting trends. Okay. So in the beginning, right, we're overly empathetic. That was just the times right. Now, after, you know, August of last year to current, Look at what's happening. We're not getting political. I'm just saying, look at what's happening in the environment. We're on our third round of stimulus money. Mm -hmm. We've got very generous economic incentives and unemployment measures. And I've experienced many of my clients. I talked to a client uh, recently in Florida, and she had uh, a bunch of people at her practice, and she lost every single one of them. And these are seasoned players. Why? They're making more money on unemployment than they did at our practice. Why would they work? So to me, our collection rate has remained quite strong. And even during the shutdown, you know, that's when I was doing home projects. I'm going to go upgrade my bathroom and I'm going to go, <laughs> do it, right? Yes. What else am I going to do besides watch the news? I just see that there's economically People have been have done pretty well. And I know there's some people, listen, the people in the restaurant. I mean, I just feel so bad for those folks. Yeah. But your average Americans, 
doing pretty well. It's interesting that you say that because the cost of wood has really gone through the roof right now. Home Depot, Lowe's, they've got great earnings right now. And it's because, I mean, my husband's working on the deck right now too. So he's rebuilding it and he's had, well, he's the king of projects around this house. So, so there's always something going on. And he says, when he goes to Home Depot, it's packed. So I think you're right. You think you're absolutely right on that. And plus now it's tax time. People are getting tax returns. And then you've got greater child tax credits coming through this time around. I think it's an extra thousand bucks per kid. Again, there's more out there. So to me, nothing has really changed. It's still plenty of money out there. And listen, if your people can't come up, if your patients can't come up with the money, at least get some type of commitment that they'll pay you $10 a month. There's no reason that people can't pay. And look at all the people that didn't pay you prior to COVID. (laughs) Now COVID's the excuse of the day. Yes. Well, what's your excuse for the past year before COVID? And I think too, and this goes back, this is even before insurance is involved, before you're involved. I think doctors and team members need to realize that if the person can't afford the work, it doesn't have to be done. I mean, I I get it. Sometimes it's an emergency, life-threatening. Yes, of course. But the fact that they can't pay you for fillings doesn't mean that you should go all bleeding heart, schedule them, and then hope they pay you. You have to be reasonable about making those decisions and making those offers. Yep. You know, we have the third-party financing. I'm a big fan of care credit. So use the care credit. Ideally, you don't have to treat everybody to... 100% health if it's going to bankrupt you. That doesn't make any sense. That's right. It's kind of what we're talking about before. You don't want to put mortgage payments uh, gambling. Yes. Again, you know, if, you know, 80% of your people pay faithfully, you know, they're five or 10% do care credit. Why not take, finance some of those people, 5%, that's not going to make you or break you and do payments with them internally or find uh, someone that will offer a credit for lower credit scores. And there's some great companies out there. Um, We feel questions all the time about that. There's still advantages. And then the membership plans are taking off. Oh my goodness, through the roof. What is it like 50% of all Americans don't have dental insurance? Does that sound right? Yeah, it's, it's high and it's climbing because of the numbers, the unemployment numbers and all that. So here's my point. Why are we always talking about insurance? I know. When that's only half of the market. You've got 50% of your market. Like the other people aren't even going after that market. And you could just rule the world on those people. It is interesting that, you know, so I I offer consultations and, you know, it's almost like a one hour, ask me anything type thing. And during the pandemic, all I got was, you know, maybe I need to drop. Maybe I need to drop. There's a lot of people going through the steps of dropping. But now people are saying, should I sign up strategically? And I'm saying, take a look at your office. If you're doing okay without them, why are you like, why? But everybody's different. Every situation is different. Everybody has different goals. I have a question for you about transition. Say somebody is purchasing an office and the office has a pretty big book of accounts receivable. How does that work with you? Do they call you and say, hey, can you clear this out before the sale or do they wait until after the sale? Yeah, we get calls from both sides. Okay. And usually either one's not particularly pretty, although it needs (laughs) to get done. It's like pulling a tooth. It's going to hurt. It's painful. (laughs) It's bloody. It's just got to get done. The selling docs typically reach out to us because they need to puff up their numbers. The buyers coming in, these are sophisticated buyers, right? You're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans. 
these people are great business people behind it. So yes, the seller, you want your collections to be high and you don't want to think about it when you're thinking about selling. It's probably too late. You need to be doing that three to five years before you sell, right? Because it's not like you just snap your fingers and we collect all your money. Now, the flip side is also true. Sometimes the buying practice owner, which is typically a younger dentist, right? They're just starting out. They're highly indebted, right? 300 grand for student loans, practice acquisition costs, equipment, the build out, whatever. And then they don't have the luxury of that dentist that operated in the 80s where they didn't have websites and social media like yes. it's like, hey, we're going to start a practice. Here's our sign on our front office. Okay, everybody, come on in. And that worked great. But that was like 40 years ago. I know. <laughs> didn't it used to be illegal to actually advertise for your dental office for patients? Oh, yeah, way back in the day. So once it became legal, then it became, is it unethical? Right. That's not a good look that you're right. trolling for patients. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what we're running a business. We have to advertise. I mean, that's irresponsible. But answer your question. Sometimes the, the new doc or docs are coming in and they just can't float all these people and leave it on the book. So if you're a purchasing doc, if you're going to inherit the AR you're really going to want to pay just pennies on the dollar. The seller often, hey, these are great patients. They've known me for years, right? They're kind of puffing that up. But guess what? That new practice owner, these people don't know you from anybody. They're not going to have that level of relationship with you necessarily. It's going to, you're going to have to really work hard to gain that. So again, purchasing AR, you want to do that really on pennies of the dollar. And sometimes the seller just says, you know what? I'm going to keep the AR for 90 days, and then it will just transition over. So it's usually oh, negotiated in the sale. If the team doesn't stay too, there's no incentive. I mean, it's like walking into a totally different practice for the patient. It is funny that you mentioned the whole advertising thing. I remember the biggest decision my boss and I had to make was, do we get a box in the yellow pages around our ad or not? Do you right. remember those days? Yeah. <laughs> and, and people are now like all the millennial dentists or even Generation X, I think is the one right below that. Yes. They're like yellow pages. What is that? It was my footstool. That's what it was. It was my footstool in the office. <laughs> yeah. Well, that made me look taller, you know? All right. <laughs> but yeah, so that just shows you where we're at. You and I are at about the same age. Yeah. yeah so we see a lot of that. I guess the key is just to be... Just don't overpay. Don't overpay for the AR. And, and really, the new practice owners are, need to get that collected. They don't have the luxury of letting you know, $100,000 sit out there and hope that people come back. That's not usually the mindset. Yeah, that's not going to happen, honestly. Yeah. So you said you need to start working on that three to five years before you go to sell the practice. But a lot of people didn't realize they were going to sell their practice this year. Yeah. A lot of my friends, they sold their practices. They're, they're gone. I know two are RVs. You know, they're just having fun. They do yeah. their practices. So I would say start that sooner than later because you never yeah. know. Then you have the freedom to do what you want to do. Yeah. And even hygienists, right? There's been this whole movement. Of, it's almost like a revolt right? <laughs> of like yes. hygienists not coming back to work and many of them don't feel valued. And there's, you can just take one look and see, see what's going on. But staffing to me, there's been good things and bad things that come out of COVID. One of the things that has really hurt practices is staffing. Yes, absolutely. Front office, hygienists, team members, that's been a nightmare. 
One of the good things that I've seen come out of COVID is what you alluded to earlier, where people realize the money that they're wasting on things they don't need. And then they realize they are forced to make better decisions because they're on a tighter budget. Yes. What PPOs do we accept? You know, what are we advertising? What are we doing? Do I really need the newest, you know, shiny object for x-rays or right? Does what we, so it's, it's made everybody step up their game. And I think a lot of people that either they can't step up their game or they choose not to, or they won't, whatever, right. They're selling, they're selling to the group practices. So that's kind of the nail in the coffin, maybe in that bottom 10%. But I think it's made arguably the other 80% kind of in the middle become better business people. So that's the one really positive thing I've seen, especially going in that fee for service. Like I've seen a lot of people just say, you know what, we're doing this without insurance. We're empowered. It's almost like you've got no other option, but just to do it. And I think people become really empowered by doing that because it's necessary for their survival. That's a whole different thing than just saying, I want to do this. This sounds cool. People are like, we need to do this. Well, it was unthinkable before, you know, and now it's actually something that you should consider. I mean, if if most of your staff doesn't come back and you don't have anybody to work insurance, that's a problem. That's going to be a big problem. I feel for these doctors because you're right, the hygienists, and there's lots of good ones, of course, but yes, there are some hygienists that don't want to come back for whatever reason. The assistants now traditionally don't get paid very well, honestly, and I wish that that would change, but now they're being asked to mask up, glove up, suit up. And it's unbearable conditions if you're hot, you're just tired at the end of the day. So they're not coming back. And then you've got managers who are like, oh, this has been great working from home. Why can't I just manage from home? And poor doctors are like, what is going on? I just want to do some dentistry. Where is everyone? It's been a tough year for a lot of dentists. But I think if this were to happen again, and I hope not, you know, knock on wood, that we'll never deal with this. At least there's a roadmap now. I mean, if there's zombies coming, like, I just want to know, right, when when we have to board up our houses and, That's right. and all that, like, but we've been through the worst. I can remember two of my most favorite days in 2020. One, when we started getting vaccines, again, not trying to get political, but I just thought that was a great, great day. And it's just getting better. And then the second part was when the ADA, and I forget, it was a press release a a couple months ago, just basically saying that the chance of COVID transmission is next to none in a dental office. It was just like a day of personal rejoicing for me. Not only as a patient where I could go in and actually get my teeth cleaned, feel good about it. But as an industry, it was nice to see that acknowledgement because honestly, We could have told you that months ago because we actually are better at PPE than most other industries. Even medical offices weren't to the level that we are. So all of us were like, what's going on here? Why can't we work? Why aren't we essential? It was just, I think it'll be very different this time around. And thankfully, there's been some really good lobbying on the parts of the the dental industry. So yeah, but hopefully we'll never have to deal with that again, right? Like, you know, as as COVID's taught us, you you never know what's going to happen next. So it's planning, what is it? Planning for the worst, but no, expecting the best, but planning for the worst. Yes. Yeah. You have to plan. And I think that's really what you and I, what's come out of this is that, no matter what, you've got to get ready for the curveballs. And having resources like you are are just amazing. The fact that you've helped so many people online. So if somebody wants to work with you, 
how do they reach you? Uh, do you want me to give my cell phone number? Yeah, well, whatever you want to put out. Oh, there. I don't care. Like, <laughs> I love it when people call or text me because I can get out of my house because my wife is teaching my kids oh. <laughs> online and I have an excuse to go to work. So like, and I love my kids and all, but still like that's I get it. job I want. So you heard it, folks. Hit them up. <laughs> Anytime I might even, uh, you know, be extra nice to you on a deal if you call me at like eight o'clock at night. So I have to come out. But anyway, my cell phone uh, is 864-517-2233. Also, if you want to check me out, my website is Dental Practice Ninjas. .com. I've got resources and articles and reviews and other stuff. If you're just bored to death and you're drinking beer one night, you want to go on my website, you're welcome to do it. You're playing it down. You have a lot of good resources on there. You've got a lot of good articles on there. And I appreciate you and all the hard work you've done too, because the insurance part is something you have to do right. Yeah. People depend on you to do that. So I appreciate you personally helped me with some people and you know that. So thank you being a good resource for the insurance community as well. Thank you. Yeah, we we are servants. You know, we we are here to serve the dental industry and and coming from that mindset, it just makes the job easy. Although sometimes I do want to just shut the door and not answer the phone, but that's a different story. So. Yeah, I don't have a life. I've already been through every Netflix thing. Like we just finished Pinky Blinders. Oh my gosh. My husband is bugging me to watch that. The first few episodes are awful. We ditched it like three times. Ah. Now we've watched everything else. Ah. We watched it. It was great, but you know, you have to be comfortable with, you know, bad language and stuff. There's nothing else to watch. Right. That's the thing. I think when people get to the end of Netflix, then we'll really revolt against being at home. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. So yeah, if I could be a resource to anybody, even if it's just to talk things out, I have heard it all before, so you're welcome to contact me. <laughs> if I can't help you, I'll, I'll connect you with someone that can. That's the truth, because you are you are a connector. That's the truth. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And I'm going to put all of Andy's info in the show notes. You can reach him, find him. He's just a joy to get to know. If you ever get a chance to see him on the road, you know, speaking, doing a webinar, check him out. As you can tell, he's he's funny to talk to. He's fun to talk to. And he's a great, great resource. With that being said, dear listeners, I always, always appreciate that you spend your time with me. We'll see you next episode. We're all super busy, so thank you for making time for me today. The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.